from PRX. Today on Studio 360, why the outlandish premise of a black guy in America in 2019 asking to be enslaved becomes weirdly believable on stage. To me, real life is trippy. If you really look at it, there's some trippy stuff going on. That's Susan Laurie Parks. I talked to her about her new play, White Noise, along with its big star, David Diggs. Plus... A Lead Belly cover done on an MTV special got frozen into some of our imaginations as the version that all the other songs were kind of leading up to. The long, rich musical and social history of a great old American song before and after Nirvana took a turn at making it theirs. That and more is ahead today on Studio 360, right after this. Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson, and I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. A play called White Noise just premiered at the Public Theater in New York City. It's written by the Pulitzer Prize winner Susan Laurie Parks. And it happens to be the best new play I've seen in ages. White Noise is set right now about four men and women who've been close friends since college, two of them white, two of them black, all educated, progressive, urban professionals. David Diggs from Hamilton and the 2018 film Blind Spotting plays Leo, who's a black artist. Before the play begins, Leo's been strolling through the city and some police stopped him for no good reason and then roughed him up. And then the drama gets fantastical. Leo comes up with this over-the-top idea to protect himself. He asks his best friend, Ralph, to buy him, enslave him. Because if he's a white man's property, he figures, the white world might leave him alone. Susan Laurie Parks, David Diggs are here with me. Welcome to both of you. Thank you so much for having us, man. Um, So, Susan Laurie. Yes. That implausible premise. That could have gone in any number of directions. How Mm. fully formed was it? And when did it pop into your head? It it popped into my head in the Ansbacher Theater where it is now playing during a performance, uh, several performances I watched over and over of the last play I had there, Father Comes Home from the Wars, the enslaved man who's the the hero is standing there wondering what his life is going to be like in the future when he is free and when he is approached by law enforcement individuals. And when he tells them, I own myself, will that be enough? And his friend Smith, a Union soldier, says, you know, I don't know if that's going to be enough. I don't know if they'll let you go. And I sat in the theater night after night watching that show and thought, oh, I have to write a show about the future. So you inspired yourself. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, yes. If nobody yeah. else is doing it for you, you know, you got to. <laughs> no, no, that's not true. That's not true. But, you know, I started thinking about what kind of play is it? Is it, you know, people say naturalism, surrealism. It's supernatural. That's what I think it is. Except that's. Makes people think there's ghosts involved and stuff. Oh, oh well. <laughs> See, well, scratch that then. <laughs> um, but did you Sorry. think, my God, this is going to be hard to pull off? I mean, mm. you were drawn to problematic 
like, how is this going to happen? Yeah. Ideas. But yeah. this one was a whopper. This is the hardest. This is the most difficult play I've ever written. Because, not just because of the premise, but because I wanted to very much hold in my head, in my heart, in my mind, in my guts, the opinions and uh, of four very different characters. But nobody gets thrown under the bus. Everybody gets a solo. Everybody gets a moment where they, uh, an extended monologue, where they get to talk about their feelings. Um, uh, David, did you know Susan Norrie's work? Uh, yeah, I've been, she's been my favorite playwright since I was a teenager, so this was... And how did you get to it as a teenager? Did you act in one of her plays? No, no. I used to do uh, a, a monologue from Top Dog Underdog for auditions, though. Uh, aside from the brilliant writing and your brilliant acting technique, David, it seems to me your incredible likability on stage. I don't know if you're likable in real life, but certainly on stage. <laughs> Much less. <laughs> you, you, are, you are incredibly likable up there as playing Leo. Uh, I think it's important for us to like Leo off the top because we're, he's the first person whose head we get inside. In the sort of experiment of empathy that theater is, like we kind of have to... All, everyone has to get on that ride, I think, with Leo because his solo is first. It's a conscious thing to be pretty interactive with the audience and to mm-hmm. be charming and to be... But also that makes sense for Leo, who who is a charming, funny, successful mm-hmm. person mm-hmm. who is all of a sudden not able to depend on that. Good school, good grades, right? And as charming as he is and all that did not stop him from getting roughed up by the police. Right. I like what you talk about, the experiment of empathy, because if Leo's solo at the beginning of the show is the beginning of our experiment with empathy... We stretch that as far <laughs> as we can because toward the end of the show, we have the character Ralph, played by Tom Sadowski, um, his solo, which is of a very different uh, feeling. Right. He, he finally taps into his latent white anger and resentment, and it's sinister and terrifying. Sinister, terrifying, honest. Yeah. And he's, he's telling us where he's at. The character of Ralph was, in writing it, the most vocal, the most willing to speak his piece. Um, and I was very grateful for wherever that character came from. Mm-hmm. The, the choice you made that certainly made me feel, okay, okay, I'm going to buy this, right. was when you decided that there would be a term limit on this enslavement period of David's character. Huh. Like, huh. like, wait, how is this going? What? Huh? And no, it's going to be this period of time. That made me think, okay. Right. I'll buy this. Right. Oh, goody, goody. Yeah. Well, I mean, but that must <laughs> well, have been Look a... at you. Look what you just said. I'll buy this. And so Ralph might have <laughs> <laughs> Ralph might have agreed to buy Leo yeah. because of the same thing. Yeah, well, maybe so. Up, we got you. <laughs> we are living in a real-life political moment that if we'd seen it in fiction four years ago, we'd go, nah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would be, seem almost as crazy as the reality of your play. Right. Right? How mm-hmm. does, let's be blunt, the new outness and prominence of white supremacy in America affect how you wrote it, if it did? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I started it, you know, in 2014. So those elements in our society, in my experience, you know, have always been there. I've, you know, from jump, always been aware of the white supremacy element in our society. But the rocks were turned over a bit more. Exactly. The rocks have been turned over a bit more. So it was not, didn't make it more difficult to write. But I think it makes it more difficult to hear because I think in, when I go to the show and watch you guys, the people we're talking to in the theater are 
you know, people who have attended the public theater. And there are certain kind of folk, folk who are ready to, uh, folk who are accustomed to examining themselves. That's my guess. And most, stereoty- so when, most stereotypes are true. Yeah, well, and so when we're, we're asking them to hmm, yeah. consider the possibility yeah. of you going down this road, that might be more difficult for them to hear. And also like Misha. Well, that's a whole other thing. That's a whole other, yeah. That this character who has her online show yeah. in which she, uh, you know, it's it's a version of what? Minstrelsy that she does? <laughs> a version of it's marketing. Uh, she, she performs on her show this kind of cartoony version of American blackness that isn't at all the real her. Yeah, considering the possibility of a black woman uh, capitalizing on the bad stuff. But also, look, I'm a rapper. Like, I perform my blackness all the time. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, I think we mm-hmm, all do mm-hmm. to varying degrees. I, mm-hmm. I think like the most sort of transgressive thing about her show is that it happens to be called Ask a Black, which, you know, which like puts this, kind of this a This character point. show in the play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. of Misha, uh, Misha's yeah. show. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I think other than that, what, what she's doing is not really any different than things that not only do we do for commercial reasons, but also that we do for status reasons within our own communities. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I, I perform my blackness in a different way around the black side of my family uh-huh. than mm-hmm. I do around the white side of my family. Yeah. And we're mm-hmm. all related yeah. Right. One of my favorite films of last year was the movie you co-wrote and co-starred in, Blindspotting, um, in which you play a black guy with a white best friend with a fraught relationship, and there's an episode of police violence. And mm-hmm. I thought, hmm, he's been here in the vicinity before. <laughs> Did you see them, that, that, that movie and starting to do this play as connected pieces? I mean, I think a lot of artists uh, that I I love are trying to examine where this feeling of terror comes from and where the feeling of being unsafe comes from and trying to be really honest about our all of our own participations in that. It is complicated and we pretend that it's not so that I think yeah. all of us who sort of fancy ourselves woke are mm-hmm. uh, tend to glaze over how difficult that actually is. Mm-hmm. We tend to mm-hmm. be like, this is how we are because this is how we are. Had, had you read, did you know uh, the book that came out as you were writing this play, the sellout, Paul Beatty's book? I, I, I know of Paul Beatty, of course, but I hadn't read it. Yeah. Somebody uh, uh, the other day said, yeah, it's like the cell. And I was like, oh, I, Well, sorry. it's this guy who, who in contemporary L.A., uh-huh. you know, resegregates his part of L.A. and uh-huh. ends up yeah. having a slave. And, and oh, I thought, right wow, on. this is like oh. a genre. Well, they did that on Boondog. <laughs> there was an episode of Boondog. Mm-hmm. Did you see that? Yeah, it was yeah. like yeah. a... And yeah, then yeah, I thought of yeah. Bamboozled, the Spike Lee movie. Yeah, I thought, yeah. there is kind of a... Like yeah. somebody could write their PhD thesis right. on this new genre, <laughs> and, of... and now many will. Yeah, <laughs> um, and it's work that I that I really don't think would have or could have been done before, like twenty years ago. Oscar said something to me when we were having dinner a while ago. Oscar Eustace, uh, your director. Yeah, which is that particularly for theater, like every play when it is performed is in conversation with the now, right? It's the difference between doing a play and a movie, which is a time capsule, right? And I thought that was really interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, And it also speaks something to when plays are written, not Mm -hmm. that you can't perform them later, but that they are having a different conversation later Mm -hmm. because they're in conversation with the moment that you're performing, which is why you have to make changes to them and not changes to the words, but update your thinking on what this play Uh means. And so I think... There is something about a like post 
political correctness movement moment where, you know, where we've all gotten so far beyond that that we're frustrated by the term that like, PC is a joke at this point. But when I was a teenager, it wasn't, you know, right, so right. there's a lot more complication of of language and terminology because right. we have because we've created all of these terms as sort of a fortress for ourselves to feel good. Uh, I haven't mentioned that this, I think, is probably the greatest play ever written about bowling. Um, uh, Come on. um, um, The first one I've seen, too, to tell you the truth. But um, uh, so David's character uh, and his pal Ralph, uh, played by Thomas Sadowski, uh, were college bowlers. Mm -hmm. And and Ralph's a bowling alley heir. And, And they bowl. They bowl throughout the whole uh, three hours. Uh, tell me about making that choice. You know, you know, my my dad was in the army, and and we moved around a lot. And wherever we went, there was always a bowling alley. And bowling, when I was growing up, was a, was an activity that my parents appreciated, partly because it was a place where they could be social when they were new on the post on the base, you know. But also there's a bowling alley. I've never seen it, but I heard in the White House somewhere there's a bowling alley. So it feels to me like this American subterranean. It's it's maybe a part of the Underground Railroad of America. Uh-huh. I just said, I just made that up. But I'm thinking, you know, part of the Underground Railroad, maybe a piece of it is a bowling alley. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, it's it's funny because bowling is kind of funny. It yeah. is, it is. But, but why? But why I, well, I know a lot of reasons, oh. and and then it would be classist of me to 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 enumerate them. But no. but uh, <laughs> um, I thought it was a, a what whatever reason. And I didn't know yeah. your familiar your childhood military brat familiarity <laughs> with bowling, but it seems like a perfect thing to because there's this kind of kinetic violence yeah. of tossing fifteen pound balls, yeah. which seems like. Oh, like yeah. expresses the play. Like mm-hmm. it's badminton would have been a bad choice. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> that, that is true. Um, Susan Murray, your, your play. I, I haven't seen and or read all of your plays, but I've seen mm-hmm. or read most of them. They they tend not to be s- strictly realistic. Right. This one right. among them. Your 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 novel is pretty realistic. Yeah, your kinda. your your screenwriting is pretty realistic. Yeah. It, it, with theater, do you decide? Okay, I'm going to do things in theater that can only be done in theater. Is that the way you, reason you go there? Of the forms in which I write, theater is the closest to real life, and I got it. real life to me is not realistic. <laughs> <laughs> to me, real life is trippy. If you really look at it, there's some trippy stuff going on. Huh. <laughs> so it's, it's it's a higher realism. Yeah. What are, what are the words? Heightened realism, heightened naturalism, heightened supernaturalism, or, or right? Super realism. Super real. Or, mm-hmm. Yeah, not uh, supernatural. Not supernatural. Okay, okay. Well, I won't say somebody that. got to that first. I like that. <laughs> yeah, the ghost. So. <laughs> so this has worked out well. Uh, having yeah. this kid who who fell in love with your work when he was seventeen uh, be in your show is like I'm, a happy ending. I'm, or it's a happy beginning. Right. I think I'm. It's I'm the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Pleased and so. thrilled, and <laughs> and I'm a little. Like, not embarrassed, but my cheeks are red right now. You can see Susan Laurie Park's play White Noise with David Diggs at the Public Theater in New York. Coming up, 
making a career out of being one of the extras who carries a spear at the opera. Possibly nobody is going to discover you, even if you fill a costume nicely, and you know nobody's going to ask you to sing in the next opera. The life of an unsung, non-singing hero of the opera world, a supernumerary. That's next on Studio 360. As everybody knows, in movies and TV, the actors who stand in the background not saying anything are called extras. But in the nomenclature of opera and ballet, they're supernumeraries, or simply supers. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Every opera has a libretto, every opera has a story, every opera takes place in a historic context and therefore requires to be brought to life on stage. Let's say there's a battle in the music. So a director might stage 200 people to march across the stage or, or be seen in battle. For example, in Aida is a huge triumphant march. There is music. Do you have to have soldiers crossing the stage because that's what the music describes? You couldn't play the music and have not dozens and dozens of people cross the stage at that point. My name is Iggy Berlin. I work at the Metropolitan Opera and American Ballet Theater as a supernumerary. A supernumerary is on stage in the theater what an extra would be in movies. It's also referred to as a spear carrier because that's what you do. You carry a spear and you walk across the stage or standing somewhere with, you know, possibly a sword or, or a, a torch. But mostly it's just people that will fill the scene with a crowd. To be a successful supernumerary, you have to have certain qualities like you have to be reliable and you also have to get along with people. Like You have to be able to take direction. You have to understand that the opera is not necessarily about you. You know, your part is to be part of a story, to fill the stage. Because there is a story uh, and a historical context to the opera, even if it doesn't specifically say a number of people in the score, it might be up to the director or the producer to say, like, we will have 150 people march across the stage here. So I started acting when I was 10 back in Germany as a child. I added later ballet lessons, ended up dancing and supering in ballet productions and opera productions back in Germany, and uh, then joined the army, finished the army. Then about a year later, I continued studying at the Ballet Academy of Cologne. I came to New York in the summer of 1989, and the following spring, I auditioned for American Ballet Theater as a supernumerary, and I've been in almost every production since. 
So at the opera house, you might get to, besides carrying chairs and tables and props and torches, sometimes you're moving parts of the scenery or sometimes you're just pretending to move parts of the scenery. And the pay structure is that you do get paid by act, which is not all that high, but there's extra pay for if you carry a torch or open flame, extra for heavy carries. If you do stage combat... In a production of Turandot, it's the second scene of the second act, and it's endless. And we stand there, it's a riddle scene. It goes on and on and on. We are under hot lights. It's a very bright scene. Everybody is dressed in white. Multiple layers of costuming, masks, headpieces, if not bald caps, possibly wigs. So it requires quite some discipline to stand there and endure the lights, the heat, the heat of the costume. And I do remember it just turned to the side as I see someone throwing up. And because he was wearing a mask like everybody else, um, it was coming through the eye-opening of the mask. But I think he was all right. One day, someone entered the opera house as a, you know, audience with his friend's ashes that he then threw off the balcony into the orchestra, thinking that he was doing his friend a favor, spreading his ashes at the Metropolitan Opera House, which then ended up probably in a vacuum cleaner. So the opera house was not the final resting place for this poor person. This is René Fleming singing Marietta's lead and was from the Met's 125th year gala celebration. We were used to move props and once I was done, I decided to go into the house and just watch the rest of the show unfold. And then René Fleming walks on stage and sings this aria from an opera. It's called Die Tote Stadt. So she starts singing, and it's just so breathtakingly beautiful. I'm stunned that I have the pleasure to sit there and, and experience this. And it's so beautifully executed. It's like eating really good cake or whatever your pleasures might be. It's unbelievable. I think I've been a supernumerary for this long because I really do love the art form. And um, as a child, I wanted to be an opera singer. And even though I didn't become an opera singer, I'm working at one of the most important opera houses in the world. So I have to understand that, you know, I'm there to move the story along. I'm there to just fill the stage a little with life and, you know, my character possibly nobody is going to discover you, you know, even if you fill a costume nicely and, you know, nobody's going to ask you to dance in the next ballet or to sing in the next opera. 
but it's rewarding and it's an amazing place to be at and watch the art unfold live every day, every night. And even if you don't speak the language, there's a strong emotion there. There's a story that possibly touches you and thrills you, and you're part of that story. That was Iggy Berlin, who works at the Metropolitan Opera as a supernumerary. Of course, it's six syllables. And by the way, Iggy also performs as a drag artist in clubs around New York City most weekends. That story, part of our ongoing series about unsung heroes, was produced by Studio 360's Morgan Flannery. So do you know somebody who's essential to making works of entertainment or art, but who is, as they say, below the line, maybe way below and so never gets any kind of recognition? If so, tell us their story in a voicemail or email and send it to incoming at studio360.org. They might become our next unsung hero. Coming up... The Pines... It represented something dangerous and something very dark and loneliness, like a very lonely feeling. We dive into those enigmatic and everlasting cold, dark pines. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. you lied to me where did you sleep last night in the pines in the pines where the sun never shines and I shivered I was 16 years old when I heard this song, Black Girl, on the hit album by the British singer Long John Baldry. I had just discovered the blues, and there was something about those sad, evocative pines that hooked me. A couple years later, those pines appeared again, hooking me harder in a song from way before my time, In the Pines, by Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys, which sounded entirely different. In the pine, in the pine, where the sun never shines. But it turns out those are versions of the same song, a 19th century American folk ballad that's gone by different names and that lots of different artists have made their own. Studio 360's Lauren Hansen has the whole story. I was also a teenager when I first heard the song. It was 1994, it was April, and Kurt Cobain had just killed himself. The weekend after his body was found, MTV played the Nirvana Unplugged special on a loop. Good evening. And this song, it was the last song of the set. My girl, my girl, don't lie to me, tell me where. It starts off with this question that's more like an accusation. 
And the answer is dire. In the past, where the sun don't ever shine, I would shiver the whole night And then later, a man, her husband, is found dead, decapitated of all things. We don't know why, but whatever is happening with this girl, it is dark. But what's really striking about Cobain's performance is his emotional tenderness. It doesn't feel like anger is propelling his question. It's, it's more like grief. And the way he delivered that song, it really felt like he was almost foreseeing his own demise. Eric Weisbart is a music critic and professor of American studies at the University of Alabama. However romantic and absurd that sounds, nonetheless, I think that was a real experience that many people had watching that. It felt special because it felt like it was a song that spoke to him. Beth McCarthy Miller was the director of Nirvana's MTV Unplugged. You know, when someone does a cover of a song they like, it kind of gives you a little glimpse into the artist. It gives a glimpse into, like, what kind of music they like and what kind of music moves them and interests them. And it was so clear how much that song meant to him. People were mesmerized. And, you know, half the people in that room had no idea what that song was. Cobain called the song Where Did You Sleep Last Night, but it's more often called In the Pines. Sometimes it's called Black Girl or My Girl. It's a folk song, and as such, its origins are really foggy. But it was probably born from African Americans who were living along or east of the Appalachian Mountains around the turn of the 20th century. It's also what we might call a murder ballad, which is a European tradition that stretches as far back as the Renaissance. In Shakespeare's time, when some gruesome slaying or rape occurred, the crime was transcribed and printed onto these large pieces of paper, which were then sold on the streets. Over time, the more popular tales of death would be set to music. Then, when the English and Scottish began to cross the Atlantic, they brought this commemoration of shocking crimes with them. When they settled along the Appalachians, the European murder ballad became a bedrock of the American folk tradition. You can hear it in popular songs like Long Black Veil, Pretty Polly, and Delia's Gone. First time I shot her, I shot her in the side. Hard to watch her suffer, but with the second shot she died. Murder ballads tell a wide variety of tragic tales, but they have a few things in common. They're stories, first and foremost. And at the heart of those stories is some sort of transgression, most often made by a woman. She's done something that society deems untoward. She's cheated, flirted, stayed out too late, or simply didn't return a man's favor. But then there's also the tone. Murder ballads are haunting and mournful, of course, but... There's this added level of creepiness when a story about a gruesome death is being told either in harmony so sweetly or almost crooning like Johnny Cash did in Delia's Gone. As for our murder ballad, 
Well, In the Pines has its own collection of lyrical calling cards, which first came together in 1926 when a banjoist named Doc Walsh makes the very first commercial recording of the song. And right off the bat, he introduces us to one of the key elements of the song, the pines. In the pines, in the pines, where the sun never shines, and it shivered when the cold wind blows. Another element is the train, this mysteriously long train. But Walsh's version also includes those murder ballad elements, like a transgression and a confrontation. And then an act of violence. The train run back one mile from town and kill my girl, you know. Her head was caught in the driver wheel. Not all of the versions of In the Pines will include all of these elements. Artists in the decades to come will pick and choose depending on the story they want to tell or the mood they want to evoke. But the pines, that cold, dark wilderness... It'll become the most common refrain that ties all of the various versions together. I think the pines symbolizes wilderness. Elizabeth DiSavino is a professor of music at Brea College in Kentucky. I think it symbolizes a place where a person is just left to be by themselves and face what they are and what they've done. In the 1940s, the song really starts to put down roots thanks to two major influential and lasting renditions of In the Pines by two very important artists. The first is Bill Monroe, a Kentucky man, a mandolin player, and a singer-songwriter. He would soon become known as the father of bluegrass. In 1941, Monroe records a version of In the Pines with his band, the Bluegrass Boys. I would call that recording kind of a, a pre-bluegrass era recording. You know, by that point, Monroe was playing concerts and he was selling records and he was kind of a big deal in what we can think of as early country music. In Monroe's version, there's actually no mention of death or violence, so it does askew the murder ballad elements of its predecessors, and it becomes a little bit sweeter and lighter in tone. But it does retain that sadness and a haunting quality, thanks to the high harmonies of Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys telling this tale about a mysterious train that takes his love away. And what's more country than a heartbreak song? I think that's very much in character for the kinds of songs that Bill Monroe sang and that actually became part of the bluegrass repertoire. The other pivotal musician for this song is the great early 20th century folk and blues musician, Lead Belly. In the early 1900s, Lead Belly was already gaining a reputation for his music and talent in Louisiana and Texas. But his music really started to get a wider audience after he met the folklorist Alan Lomax in the 1930s. Alan Lomax actually toted Lead Belly around to play for society people in New York. There are some videos of Lead Belly singing Irene Goodnight at this party with, and he's singing to these women in these pink chiffon gowns 
who are kind of, you know, hovering over him, drinking champagne. And he's got this look on his face like, these people really want me to sing this here? In 1944, in New York, Lead Belly records the first of at least a half dozen versions of In the Pines, which he'll most often call Where Did You Sleep Last Night, or Black Girl, or Black Gal. He found this song, and he reinterpreted it, and and he made it his own, and he sort of bluesified it. If you listen to it, you hear that he's using the flat third. Black girl, black girl, don't you lie to me. There's the flat third. In his versions, Lead Belly leans into the darkness of this song. That bluesified effect gives the song a sort of creepy feel like something's just not right. It's also musically really bare. It's just his voice and his guitar. It's lonely. In his song, Lead Belly addresses either my girl or black girl, and that's probably depending on the white or black audiences he was told to sing for at the time. And lyrically, he does away with the train entirely. Instead, Lead Belly focuses on the confrontation and the murder. Lead Belly lived a, a violent life. I mean, he was in jail for murder. This is very in character, I think, for Lead Belly to sing a song about violence and about murder. The Lead Belly version, he's very much emphasizing the love gone wrong. Again, music critic and professor Eric Weisbard. And the sense of being in the pines as being alienated from love, alienated from life that way. From this moment on, the versions of In the Pines follow either Monroe, a tender, high-lonesome country bluegrass song about a train and heartbreak, or Lead Belly, a musically stark, lyrically bleak murder ballad that emphasizes isolation and death. And you can actually see a pattern emerge over time, with each subsequent decade, each generation picking a tradition for themselves. So in the 1950s and 60s, the middle of the civil rights era and the folk revival, Lead Belly's version takes the mantle, with singers like Josh White, Bob Dylan, and Joan Baez all telling their stories through it. Black girl, black girl. Don't lie to me. Oh, you been so long? Not even your mama knows. Pines in the pines where the sun never shines. I shiver. This reaching across racial lines was very much part of the civil rights era. And so it's not surprising that the Lead Belly version came around again in the 50s and 60s with all of its anger and all of its darkness. Following the cultural traumas of the 1960s, the sounds of the 70s turn a corner. They celebrate peace and love and community with ornate compositions and harmony. And this fits in really nicely with Bill Monroe's country bluegrass version, which becomes popular again. In that version, I think you're actually trying to summon some kind of communal spirit in the face of the world. Again, Eric Weisbard. It it is on some level a heart song. It's a song people sing together. So version after version that you hear, you can hear four women from the Carter family singing it together. In the past. 
Dolly Parton in the moment from her 1970s variety show that she was most proud of. Is everybody ready back there? Where she brought her parents uh, in front of the camera and they all sang In the Pines together. In the Pines, in the Pines. In those versions, there's harmony singing, that sort of high lonesome harmony, and you're kind of overcoming things rather than consumed by them. In the Pines. Then came the 90s and the advent of grunge music, where the angst of punk met the anger of metal and the catchiness of rock. It was these musicians who reached back in time to connect with the darkness of Lead Belly's version. For the grunge people, that Lead Belly version becomes a way to sort of explore kind of punk concepts of alienation. They really push that version to its most isolated, alienated, no-exit place. Mark Lanigan is another Seattle grunge musician associated with the band The Screaming Trees. And it was... His father, who had an original 78 RPM version of Lead Belly's recording of Where Did You Sleep Last Night, because his father was part of this folk revival. He plays this song, and he and Kurt Cobain record a version of it in 1990 before Kurt Cobain's well-known at all. Clearly, from that point forward, it's in Kurt Cobain's wheelhouse. Cobain's version, that raw performance from a tortured rock star, was an indelible image. And it was sort of agreed upon at the time that it couldn't possibly be topped. A Lead Belly cover done on an MTV special got frozen into some of our imaginations as not just the most important version, but on that level as the version that all the other songs were kind of leading up to. And that's not true, but I fell for it. But after Cobain, and perhaps because of him, the song continues to attract new interpretations in multitudes. But with the new millennium and the technological panic of Y2K, the horror of 9-11 and the advent of war, artists yearned once more for a return to tradition and found Monroe once again. I just always had an attraction to the mystery of the song. The singer-songwriter Bill Callahan recorded a version of In the Pines on his 2005 album called A River Ain't Too Much to Love, which he recorded under his moniker Smog. Things aren't making sense. It takes three hours for the train to go by, and plus the conductor threw his watch away. Well, I asked the captain time of day he said he threw his watch away I mean that's like literally a timeless image but the pines are are constant it's kind of a kind of spirit versus flesh all those flesh things are intransigent and 
impermanent, whereas the, the spiritual pines are as eternal as anything that we can know. In the pines, in the pines, where the sun never shines. So if you're taking a song that's summoning these big abstract things, the pines, the longest train I ever saw, and you stretch it out the way Bill Callahan does, you're actually taking a position on music that's pretty important. Bluegrass was sometimes called folk music in overdrive. What does Bill Callahan do? He takes a bluegrass song and he turns off the overdrive. He he makes an indie version that is as slow as the bluegrass sound is driven. Callahan's version is warm, much like the Monroe predecessors of the 1970s. It draws you in rather than pushes you away. But it still carries that mournfulness as it wistfully harkens back to another time in history. It's not just about individuals as artists remaking the song. It's about the needs of different music scenes and the people who those scenes speak to. So in one moment, it might be about the need of bluegrass to be a kind of music that signifies tradition in the larger country world. In another scene, it might be about how Lead Belly came down in the folk revival as it fed into rock to represent this kind of troubled figure who people who felt troubled themselves identified with. The Pines, it represented something dangerous and something very dark and loneliness, like a very lonely feeling. The Grammy-winning singer-songwriter Xavier de Frepelez is better known by his stage name, Fantastic Negrito. His version of In the Pines is a descendant of Lead Bellies, and it appears on his 2016 album, The Last Days of Oakland. Fantastic Negrito's brother and then cousin were both killed by gun violence when they were just teenagers. And it's those tragedies that inspired him to bring in the pines into the future. And I've seen it happen over and over again. And it's always the women who are the strong ones. As an artist, I felt like it would be great to pay homage to them through in the pines. And there was a version where I'd heard where they'd also sing Black Girl... Don't lie to me. Where did you sleep last night? And that was the version that I wanted to do because, yeah, these are black women burying our children. Where was that dark place? And how did you get through it? It's a place where the sun doesn't shine. But how are you so strong? That song adds one more reason why someone could be in the pines. Because Lead Belly sings this song to a black girl, black girl, black girl. Cobain, it's my girl. If it is a black girl, a black woman, the fact that in this version by Fantastic Negrito, she's there because the police killed her child and it becomes a kind of Black Lives Matter take on this song, that strikes me as, as really interesting and really powerful. And you raise that child all by yourself. Then the 
shot him you know, these songs, whether they're 100 years old or whether they're 600 years old, they live because they mean something to the people who sing them. And every hand that touches them takes it and holds it and molds it differently according to the experience of the singer. Today, in our splintered digital streaming world, nearly all of the 200-plus variations of In the Pines can be heard by any person at any time. And yet artists continue to cover it, to reinterpret it, to tell their stories through it, and to put their sorrows in it. I tend to think of a song like this that changes in everyone's mouth. And over time, I see it like an, an oracle. You know, I have this message. I have to, I have to give it to you. In the pond, in the pond, where the sun never shines. That story was produced by Studio 360's Lauren Hansen. You can check out our timeline and gigantic playlist of the various versions of In the Pines at studio360.org. And that's it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our sound engineer is... Sandra Lopez-Monsalve. Our producers are... Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is... Morgan Flannery. I'm Kurt Anderson. He was selling records and he was kind of a big deal. Thanks very much for listening. PRI, Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360. The opening line is just one of the most powerful pieces of rock and roll. Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. Patti Smith's bracing, groundbreaking debut album, Horses. This is a statement of artistic purpose. Next time on Studio 360. Thick. Hot stew.